Shalom and welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe podcast. I'm Miriam Anzavin, and I'm joined as usual by my co-host, Dan Seligson. Hi, Dan. Hey, Miriam. What happens when you combine sophisticated musicianship with a mashup of styles and influences ranging from Jewish liturgical music to funk, jazz, and gospel? Something pretty amazing. The Afro-Semitic Experience, a two-decade collaboration founded by African-American jazz pianist Warren Byrd and Jewish-American jazz bassist David Chevin, is coming to the greater Boston area with a performance at the JCC of the North Shore in Marblehead on September 15th. Now, my personal musical tastes exist on a very small range of Tech 9 to Ariana Grande, so I can't really say that I know a lot about jazz instrumentation. So I'm really excited to hear from our two guests and learn how they bring together so many different influences. It sounds like a challenge, but it all melds in a really remarkable way in the Afro-Semitic experience's music. Warren and David are here with us today on the Vibe of the Tribe to talk about their influences, the history of the Afro-Semitic experience, and how they bring together cultures and sounds to create, in their words, unity in the community. David, welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe. Hey, thank you. Thank you. Let's start in the beginning. Tell us about your individual musical backgrounds. Well, why don't we start with David? So, my name is David Shevin, and I am a bass player. I've been a bass player for a very long time. I grew up in a conservative Jewish synagogue where I was very active as a kid, Um, and it was one of those synagogues where uh, the young kids were supposed to learn the service and lead it even before even before their B'nai Mitzvah. So I am at a point where, you know, I've been leading services for over almost 50 years anyway. When I started studying as a jazz musician, one of the things that one of my teachers said to me in the course of, 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 of our conversations was uh, something along the lines of, uh, you know, most jazz musicians have church up inside them. Uh, do you have any synagogue up inside you? <laughs> and yeah, so I took that as 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 both a challenge and a thought piece about what it means to be a jazz musician and what it and what what a jazz jazz musician actually represents. And one of the things I'll say from the start is it's subjective. You know, everybody comes into the arts. Uh, from whatever perspective, whatever training they have. Uh, but that thought process that my teacher, Dr. Horace Boyer, uh, said to me was, was really the beginning of a lifelong exploration and journey into who I am, uh, both as a jazz musician and a Jewish musician, um, and that the two don't need to be separate and that the thinking of them doesn't need to be separate. Mm. Um, and it's probably more answer than you were looking for, but um, oh, that's just that's just one 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 element of of, of who I am as an artist uh, would 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 be that uh, that strand. Um, and I could talk about me for hours, but um, <laughs> that that might be that might be that, that that might be a good place for me to stop and let Warren come in. Yeah, well, I tell you, uh, for me. Um, I'm, uh, by the way, I'm Warren Bird, and 
play some piano, sing a tad, and uh, do some composing. And between God, church, and the world of entertainment, I had basically absorbed a ton of music by the time I was in grade school. And I mean, I was the youngest of 16, and there was, you know, each family member contributed something to uh, a very vibrant household in the way of music. And so I had a lot of different stuff that I had heard and understood on some level by the time I had even started to uh, uh, learn what school was about. And uh, somehow I came along with a, a desire to be great. Mm. <laughs> be great at, I guess something... I guess something musical. I remember um, I, I actually wanted to uh, emulate, of all things, Glenn Miller as a little five-year-old kid and wanted to study trombone. Mm. But uh, at that time, they were they considered me too small to study trombone, even though I was a pretty big five-year-old kid. Um, ever since, it's been a long, long journey, a lot of twists and turns, many characters, events, travels, pitfalls, and recoveries, and uh, the thing that's always been constant is that uh, music has always been there to keep me somewhere sane, and I, I always like to think of it as a, a relic of God's grace. Mm. I, I mm. think it's fascinating how you both had this connection to music as a part of worship, beginning at a very early age. I think it's, it, it was that one of the things that first uh, made you connect? Yeah, I wonder about that. Uh, just from the standpoint that uh, one of the stories about our progression into the Afro-Semitic experience is that I was playing a song from the church, let's uh, come, um, at, a, at a casino of all places. And um, David recognized the tune. So I, I guess the answer would be yes. And uh, I would invite David to elaborate upon that further. But I think that this shows, one, I didn't expect David to have known the song, <laughs> although it was a relatively popular song. So, um, Well, that, you uh, know what? I, I, mentioned Dr. I mentioned Dr. Boyer before. Dr. Boyer is the person yes. who hit me in that song. I mean, he... He made sure that, that that if we were going to actually get an understanding of 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 what it means to to listen to African American music, we weren't just going to listen to jazz. We were going to listen to the music, you know, the music that people listen to. Right. So That's right. I didn't mean to interrupt, Bird, but 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 I just I just love you know. No, it's perfect. Remember. remember Remembering our elders and, and honoring the memory of, of, of those who came before us who, who really, really, in some ways, hewed a path that made it possible for us to do what we do. You know, I, I love the way that you describe your music. Um, and, you know, you, you've on the website, it says uh, Charles Mingus sitting in with a klezmer band. I think that's such a fascinating way to talk about what you're doing. Well, the funny I, thing I, is, I, is that it probably actually happened. <laughs> yeah, I know. If 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 anything that we've ever read or heard about Mingus is true, he probably did check that out. Especially when you listen to some of his recordings. But that being said, I think uh uh 
one of the things that that expresses for me as a musician is that Charles Mingus was one of those genuinely forward thinking, uh, embracing composers who tried to, uh, tried to hear and play everything all at once because he was such a creative spirit. So when someone describes us that way, uh, that tells me that they're hearing some things that, that we're hoping that we're doing as artists and as creative people and that they're actually hearing it. So I love it when people say things like that. time this week listening to your music. There are a few song titles that stood out to me. Uh, a song for when the temple is rebuilt, a Torah afloat in a leaky boat lands in Congo Square, and Waters of Babylon. And then you've got your own interpretations of traditional uh, Jewish prayers, which I'm more familiar with, like Adon Olam, Tashlich, Male Rachamim, Eliyahu Anavi, Alchet, how would you say African-American and Jewish music are forms of worship or spiritual engagement? Well, you know, it's the kind of question for me that really asks whether or not we understand what the true nature of music is. I mean, I, I personally uh, look at the situation uh, of what music is substantially is some kind of um, a form of vibration that comes directly from a center within us. I mean, we may use very um, mundane manners of absorbing it into our internalizing it and putting it into our bodies in order to make it so that we can express it. But ultimately, it's something that is very spiritual. And it doesn't matter what you use to frame uh, what comes out, um, ultimately, it touches something very much deeper than the surface. Uh, insofar as worship goes, I mean, I, I feel that life itself is worship. Now, whether we choose to atone uh, to our Creator um, becomes the question of whether we're consciously searching um, a deeper commitment to the Absolute. And the music helps us to at least be in touch with that thing beyond the mundane. Um, it can become a springboard or it can even become a, 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 a magic carpet ride to a higher place. So it, it might not even be a matter of whether it's African-American or Jewish. And that's, I think, one of the implicit messages of why we uh, stick together and continue to do what we do, which is that uh, despite of where our backgrounds are, this is something that is really reaching towards uh, the universal and something without boundaries. And that can, can bring all people together if they're willing, but they have to be willing. And that's that. Uh, 
Uh, let's talk about that a little more. Your message is all about unity in the community. I know you lead workshops with that title as well. And this is something that many people are searching for, especially right now. How do you think we can achieve this kind of harmony? What we're seeing right now uh, in America and around the world is something that, that we've been concerned with for a long time. That's why Afro-Semitic experience didn't start last year or the year before, but uh, we've been doing this for over 20 years, and we've been trying to bring communities together for over 20 years. And as you know, when you bring communities together with a concert like Afro-Semitic experience, that can be a powerful catalyzing moment where people who uh, represent the rainbow of humanity might show up. And as you noted, with some of our songs, you might have, you know, one person nodding and bopping their head. And with others of our songs, uh, you might have another person bopping their head. But what we're hoping is by the end of the concert, we've created a moment of unity that can be carried forward. Um, And then it's the hard work uh, of the grassroots, because while an event that we do might be a catalyzing agent that brings people together. Uh, it's a question of what people continue to do um, after we've after we've visited a community that really determines whether unity is a temporary or achievable promise. I think the concept of unity is very difficult for many of us to really come to terms with without um, the challenge of seeing how it truly feels to sit in the field of otherness and then try to fit into a situation where um, we feel apart. Um, But I I think that opportunity always exists and uh, it can teach us. um, And then if we allow the arts, if we allow expression to help us find the universality, of uh, where we all meet somewhere deep in the center of the being, in, in the center of existence. I mean, that's actually a bit, I, I know, a bit wordy and perhaps uh, grandiose. And it's, no, we're like and looking at each other, we're a little thinking about up. how beautiful that we're is. We're a little verklempt. Yeah, I, I just wanted to ask a, a question. I, I'm curious, you know, having come from the Reformed Jewish community, we're really into finding new interpretations or new meanings in traditional Jewish prayer melodies or even prayers themselves. What do you think is the role of the musician in in reframing tradition or modernizing tradition, if that even makes sense? I'll let you have the first crack, Mr. B. Oh, um, whoa. (laughs) That's that's actually, um, wow. Well, I, I tell you where I take it to, and I'll, I'll come directly from my experience as a person who I had a situation where I was trying to teach some young people from the inner city um, of Hartford how to sing as a choir, train voices to sing in a choir at a uh, local uh, arts community, um, uh, arts center of the arts, and. Um, they were very resistant to anything that came from traditional church, um, camp, from the traditional church canon. Now, whether it was hymns, whether it was um, 
you know, classic gospel music. Um, but if it sounded like hip hop or R&B of the eighties, um, or had a strong bat beat to it, um, they could begin to accept it. Um, and what it was very clear was that, uh, the next generation of churchgoers will somehow incorporate this kind of thing into the way they worship and this kind of uh, sensibility. It doesn't mean that they'll bring guns into church. And, and I mean, that would be the most <laughs> literal uh, transmutation of that kind of or adaptation or whatever stereotype you want to uh, build into that. But it's more about uh, recognizing, um, you know, the, the, young, the, the, the newer generations Technology and the newer generations, the way technology sort of has helped to define uh, the various generations throughout the 20th century and going into the 21st century, often helped to determine how they worship in church. Um, and so one of the things that, I, that started happening from the time I was a kid and learning songs by rote to actually directing choirs in the 90s was that they relied on tapes in order to learn songs a great deal. Um, and so it was actually a challenge to then teach them to accept accompaniment that was made on the spot, although that, that was not something that had completely died. Um, insofar as how to change or how it manages to affect tradition um, or affect um, um, how rituals are um, uh, progressed in, in the context of the church, that might be just a little bit beyond what I can uh, clearly describe to you right here. But I just know for a fact that um, the music itself often uh, mirrors a lot of what has happened. And if you look at the music of when I was a kid in church and the music of the church nowadays, um, you will see that uh, it basically has gone along the lines parallel to what's going on in the pop world hmm. um, and R&B world. So in, in a lot of ways, that has further affected how people approach the concept of delivering uh, the messages that are contained in the gospel. Um, so, for instance, you'll see more dance-oriented um, services. Um, right. You'll see more uh, very hip-hop-oriented music, rapping, rapping uh, gospels, um, um, uh, rapping praise. Uh, praise songs that are uh, with uh, praise dancers and all kinds of entertainment kinds of uh, aspects. And I mean, one of the big debates between older generations and newer generations often is uh, whether or not this has anything to do with worship. And is it just another way of uh, getting more people to come and uh, pay their tithes? And and keep and keep the uh, coffers of the of the church alive. Or, or we don't get any of this at all, um, by the way. But um, well, really, no. Oh, well, it's probably just a matter of uh, a 
couple of decades. I don't know. Yeah, maybe you're going to the wrong synagogue. <laughs> I know, I'm going to the wrong synagogue for sure. Actually, one of, one of the things that's really interesting today and that Warren and I have gotten to experience because we've played in so many synagogues around the United States, uh, especially in reform synagogues, is that uh, what I've seen is the reform movement is very often open to to new compositions and new approaches. And I've seen some elements that uh, I wouldn't say are the same, but have uh, corollaries to what Warren's describing in terms of some of the compositions I've heard from some of the new uh, some of the new and younger um, uh, song leaders and composers in the reform movement. So, uh, so I, I do wonder if everybody is kind of peering over the fence and checking out what what, what everybody else is doing. I mean, I certainly still am not just listening to old school gospel when I check out gospel. Uh, I'm checking out Kirk Franklin, and and he's already old school because there's younger players than him and artists than him that are getting even more into uh, hip-hop church music. On this topic of evolution, I'm wondering how the Afro-Semitic experience has evolved now that you all have been together for either close to two decades or maybe even a little more than two decades. Right, 21 years. And and I think we might have some distinctly different answers in some places we meet in the middle. And I would almost say that we're we're only beginning to evolve because... um, Part of what we've been doing is uh, gestating and um, uh, wildly uh, replicating cells. Mm. And so we've now reached a certain kind of level of, of stability and are beginning to grow into a fully integrated being and starting to um, incorporate a real sense of of how do you say, uh, personality and how to manipulate that or how to uh, uh, make that work in the world. You know? well, that's a really interesting thing, Bird, because I think what you hit is, is, is a really important thing that we're kind of developing now, which is how can we not just be um, used to call it poster boys, right? You know, poster children for... <laughs> He had this thing he used to say. We like, he doesn't want us to be the poster child for um, for unity, but we've already figured out that whether we want to be the poster child or not. For some folks, we may be, but what we're trying to do is not become just a stereotype or a set of typical expectations, but really be ourselves and activists and advocates uh, for unity and for commonality and understanding. Which I hate to take two steps back, but there's one thing I wanted to say to one of the questions you asked earlier about what we do in terms of innovation, etc. And I think one of the things that Afro-Semitic experience represents, anyway, is a way of keeping traditions and expanding them. 
uh, which is not which is which is really something that that if you think about it for most of history, that's what musicians really do. Yeah, you know, we're the keepers of tradition. We're the keepers of tradition. If you walked into a synagogue or a church and every song was new, you you, you wouldn't be able to stay. So there has to be some tradition. Without tradition, yeah, and, and people people don't want to people don't want to go to the house of worship because oh they don't know the right songs they don't know the right words you know so there's an expectation but the other side of the coin which is what Warren really really dug into beautifully is that we can't just be keepers of a flame we also have to move that flame forward we have to stand on the shoulders of Charles Mingus. Uh, and Duke Ellington and Yosela Rosenblatt and Benny Goodman and find ways to have our own voices within that process. I love that. Anyway, yeah. I'm getting off, and, I'm uh, off my soap, soapbox now. <laughs> oh, well, we can't forget like um, some of the uh, Wondrous Women as well, such as Marianne yeah, yeah. Williamson, yes. Mary, uh, Mary McPartland, uh, Shirley Caesar. And uh, Mahalia, Jack, the list goes on and on of all the, the great figures that have come and gone. And one of my favorites to mention here is Nina Simone. Uh, yes. Um, yes. One of the things that David mentioned, and, and, and I'll sort of extend, uh, expand the soapbox just a little bit to say that um, um, I think uh, what it comes to is to realize that there is something very powerful about ritual. And yeah. that ritual needs to be respected before it is simply abolished. We need to learn how to contact the people who have made their atonement with those things. And I mean, um, wow, it, it can get into some areas when you start discussing uh, whether or not a ritual is truly uh, connected to something uh, uh, higher, universal, eternal. Absolute. Um, but um, I think essentially, when we start talking about a body of people, um, it's important to know the things that they share, that they cherish together, and to be able to uh, move into that and share that with them, as well as add something new. So um, it's very much um, adding to what David has said and just looking at another side of that. Yeah. Mm. So I'm interested to know after listening to your music and, and hearing the different sounds and the different compositions, what are some of the favorite pieces you've produced and why? Mm -hmm. Good question. Thank you. Uh, the latest thing, I'm because a, it's the latest thing. Look the doctor. Yeah, I always love the thing I'm working on the most recently. Right. You know that that tends that tends to be that tends to be true. Which doesn't mean I don't I don't love everything I've I've done. It means I'm always thinking I'm always thinking the next thing that I want to be doing, um, which has been a great thing for this for for this group because over the years we've managed to do so many things together. When I look back. There's so there's so many good moments, but I, I, I do have to say um, one of the things that I really liked was the realization that uh, that I didn't have for so many years is that Warren has this amazing gift of voice and singing, and he brings so much spirit and ruach and neshama 
to what he does that uh and because we've spent so much time with cantors uh i'm just blown away every time we get to go on stage and just do about anything where warren gets to sing a bit warren how about you do you feel the same about you know the latest thing is the thing oh <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> that's um you know that's that's a that's a class that's almost a, a that's, that's a like a classic trope, you know, of of many of our very prolific creators. Um, I'm I'm enjoying. Uh, what's your favorite thing? The latest thing I'm doing now. I don't know if you remember. Um, uh, there was a very um, oh, I, I can't remember his his name. It was with Edward R. R. Marlin. Actually, I'm thinking of uh, the guy who made Ran, the guy from um, Japan who uh, made a ton of beautiful films. Oh, I think his name was Kurosawa. Yeah, uh, and he said, "Hey, what's your favorite? What is the favorite film you've done? The one I'm working on now." Oh, Kurosawa. We're talking about films. Yeah. Yes. Oh, my favorite is Hidden Fortress of his. His his work, but that's just my take. No, I can dig it. That's the only one I've ever seen. I think I've seen two of his films. It was Rand. I remember Rand very well. The yeah. other one, I don't. Yeah. So Rashomon. Yeah. But I mean, he's oh, he Rash- Rashomon. Great. Well, how about Seven Samurai? Oh, there you go. There you go. Oh yeah, that's right. But I didn't see that all the way through. Oh, that's so a classic. There is the problem. But he was always um, quoted as saying. Yes, my next film is my favorite. So <laughs> I, I actually do have some favorite songs that, that we've done. And it's always very difficult to decide any one of them um, or any particular productions. But I just, I really enjoyed the work we did on uh, the Days of Awe mm, projects. Yeah. Um, Very timely as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and David went into some real deep studies of uh, the work of Yasuo Rosenblatt and uh, helped to create some transcriptions. And we did a process. We went through a process in order to build these songs of just working on them and workshopping them, bringing parts of ourselves to the pieces that he presented. And it was usually a line and maybe um, some text, uh, some uh, recordings that he had of Yasala singing the song, um, and some rehearsals and talking about the concepts, the songs, and uh, our jazzness. We brought our jazzness to it. And this way, Dr. Shevin was able to bring the elements of humanity out of us to create this piece. So he was able to capture this very well on the uh, album, I feel. And that's just one of, oh man, at least a dozen uh, things that I really enjoy from uh, our 21 years together uh, of what we've created. If we needed to queue up one song right now, what song would it be? Because we're gonna play it. We're gonna play it. You're gonna play one song right after you say it. We're gonna play. Well, it. I, I think uh, I'm gonna live the life I sing about in my song. Mm. Uh, tells tells a lot of our story very quickly. It's not the 
It's not the only song I call, but that would be one of them. Perfect. <laughs> oh, there you go. That's, yeah. that's really nice. So, uh, the creator has a master plan. It's also a nice one. Yeah. yeah, I always yeah. enjoy it. listening to uh, and remembering Stacy Phillips and the way he begins that tune on uh, uh, lap steel guitar. That's yeah. um, something that definitely stands out in my mind. To my next question, which is, what can people expect to hear uh, musically from your catalog from for when you're here in the North Shore in September uh, at your concert? Mm-hmm. So very often, like good old fashioned jazz musicians, we have to call it from the stand because we have to see where the people are feeling it. Yeah, because we're we're playing we're playing for people. Right. So we can come in with an agenda, but what we have to respect the fact that maybe maybe something's going on in the world that day that we need to address through our music, and yeah. we have healing pieces, and we have pieces that celebrate. So, uh, you know, like any good musician, we're ready for, for wherever the world is at at that moment. But I have a feeling we're going to share some of our newer things. Unity in the community has been something that we've been really trying to to get around so that people have an anthem that they can sing in the dark times. Yeah. Um, so, so I, I have a good feeling that you can expect that for sure. Um, and beyond that, I'd say expect the unexpected. Perfect. Uh, well, I, I just want to thank both of you so much for coming on the podcast today and, and talking with us about your work and, uh, this has been so, you know, enlightening for me. <laughs> so thank you so much. Hey, thank you, you bet. It's our pleasure. Yeah. And we do hope folks will come after hearing this will come out and, and see us at the concert. Uh, we're really excited to be bringing our music to, to the North Shore. I'm, I'm trying to think if we've ever in our 21 years been on the North Shore. Um, and, and nothing rings a bell. Or if it is, it's been a long time. So... Uh, we just we just hope it's a beautiful day and the weather yeah. is good and people can have it outdoors. Amen. Because that would be so much fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Be great. Amen. Yeah, wait. All right. Thank you so much. Listeners, find out more about the Afro-Semitic Experience by visiting AfroSemiticExperience.net and get tickets to their September 15th concert by checking out the link in the show notes. Remember to follow at Jewish Boston on social media and subscribe to The Vibe of the Tribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or TuneIn. You can also email us at podcast at jewishboston.com with your comments, feedback, and ideas for future topics and guests. Thanks as always to our editor, Jesse, and our composer, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs>